Yes, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Hey Ho Moon Can't Co. Ocho, it's yourself. Hello. Oh, sorry, you appear to have turned into Arthur Mullard. The enunciation was too good for <laughs> Arthur Mullard. Arthur Mullard. That's Chewbacca, isn't it? <laughs> never, never forget that not only did Arthur Mullard and Hilda Baker record a full album, but our very own daughter Christian Troy owns a copy. I think it's a tragedy Ronnie Barker didn't do a cover version of My Generation. Yeah, I think that there would have been popularity. Actually, speaking of which, I know Hilda Baker did do a cover version of Substitute, but it was the version by that, it was that song by that South African band, I'll Be Your Substitute. The idea of Hilda Baker and Arthur Mollard doing Substitute by The Who. <laughs> what a universe that would have been. There is a single by Ronnie Barker. He did a full-length version of the theme to Going Straight. It's out there somewhere, if you care to track it down. It's got full lyrics as not heard in the TV version. Any other business? Couple of things I think we should bring up. First of all, I'm really, really chuffed about this, because this is something that's gone completely under my radar. You know how on a couple of occasions recently I've been saying that I'm not a huge fan of the soaps? Yes. And therefore I don't really tend to keep up with what's going on with them. But, as you know, I am a huge fan of the Only Fools and Horses prequel slash spin-off, Rockin' Chips. Coincidentally, I am occasionally a viewer of The Upper Hand. And, of course, like everyone else, I'm a huge fan of the Adam Faith series from 2002, The House That Jack Built. Which, Jojo, you haven't actually seen all of yet, have you? No, and I don't think I ever will. One person who appears in all of those is Kelly Bright, and she has just become the landlady of the Queen Vic in EastEnders. Ah. I had no clue about this, except that I did catch an episode in the middle of December. Basically, there were other people in the room who wanted to watch EastEnders, so, you know being polite and what have you, didn't switch over to Family Fortunes on Challenge. And there was this whole storyline going on about how the Queen Vic was going to be sold by the guy who isn't Ross, but the other one. You know what I mean, don't you? Not Ross Kemp, but the other guy. Okay. So he was going to sell the Queen Vic. And I presume that that's how all this has happened. So, there you go. So, yes. I have no idea what he's talking about, ladies and gentlemen. You know what the Queen Vic is, don't you? It's a pub. Exactly, it's a pub. It's like the centrepiece in EastEnders. It's where they all go to have Barneys and arguments and, you know, good old fisticuffs. And... Well, you went Ross, not Ross the other one. I'm thinking Norris. No. no. <laughs> the McWhorters were never involved in the administration of the Queen Vic to my knowledge. But no. So, what's his name? Steve McFadden. That's what I'm talking about. So, his character was going to sell whatever or something or whatever the fuck and he did and and there you go so yeah I haven't actually seen herself in it yet but I'm going to have a wee peek at EastEnders at some point whenever I think of Kelly Bright I think of the time she appeared on the continuity booth of Children's ITV yes with Tommy Boyd to sing a song about road safety to the tune of the Inspector Gadget theme tune they had some competition which was either write a new theme tune for these popular children's shows or put different words to the already existing thing. I remember some kid had a Thomas the Tank Engine thing that sounded pretty damn funky. Well, I think we need to try and dig this clip out if this clip is in existence anywhere. But I think you're talking about the sort of the second Tommy Boyd era when he came back. I was still trying to be all hip and with it and what have you. Now, there's something I forgot to mention last time. 
I said there was a reason I hadn't sent you Series 1, Episode 1 of Dick Turpin. I sent you Series 1, Episode 5. And it's because there is a Edwin Richfieldism in it. <laughs> hey! Subsequent viewings, I think Christopher Benjamin is saying fopping. <laughs> It's the bit when it's a nice bit of business actually. It was worth, yeah. And that was the reason I sent it was to discuss. Did he say what I, th- I thought he said? And then I realised no, he didn't say what I thought he said. Right, I will check. But this. I completely forgot to mention it last time. There's that nice. But th- speaking of crossovers between dramas, well, I know Birdie said on our Facebook that I thought Dick Turpin was a kids show, which is a very fair description. But we had to have something a bit light. There was that nice bit of business where. I think Sir John Glutton's manservant is called something like Allery, but Dick Turpin has disguised himself as a different manservant. He comes in and Sir John goes, you're not Allery. No, sir, I'm Zachary. Where's Allery? He's in the scullery. It's a nice <laughs> bit of business. And then Turpin spills his drink, spills a drink on Sir John for good and sufficient reasons. <laughs> you fopping idiot. I thought you were going to tell me it featured an appearance by former England captain Alan Mullery. <laughs> and they kept this they kept this gang going for a full twenty minutes. We had some good feedback with regard to Drama Club. For example, you mentioned Birdie. Birdie also got in touch with us on Facebook and she said seems to be all politics, police, prostitutes. I'm sick of murders and conspiracies. Everyone is flawed, everyone's a maverick. I'm sick of gritty. And our very own Bogan Strovia replied, So am I. Everyone thinks gritty times, gritty drama, sometimes, but not all the time. He also says, I've seen every episode of Bergerac, and that was a good romp. Now, I do like a good romp. I'm all for that. So, yes. I think Tony Melody's in Bergerac, isn't he? Oh. See, I'm not that well informed when it comes to Bergerac. I know that sitcom stalwart and the very first Malcolm in Terry and June, Terence Alexander, is a regular in Bergerac. And there is an episode of Enemy at the Door with John Nettles as a policeman on the Channel Islands. Okay, he's on Guernsey, not Jersey. But... Ah, interesting, interesting. He was not just the subject, but the title star of a show which I found ultimately rather disappointing. There was this little program, I think it might have been on West Country, it was a few years ago, and it was John Nettles talking about like sort of places and people that he admired and so on. And the name of the show was John Nettles Applauds. And you you know straight away what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking it's going to be him in a theatre. 24 minutes. But alas not, they weren't that brave. They thought that was going to be too left field for regional ITV audiences. G. Baker also got in touch with us. Really enjoyed the sitcom Club Does Drama. Most enlightening. Thank you very much, G. She says, really excited for your discussion of The Good Life, which we'll be coming to in just a moment. However, The Good Life isn't the only sitcom that we've seen recently. Is it, Ocho? Isn't it? I'm going to put this. The only way that you could improve a viewing of the Juicy Free Christmas special is to watch (laughs) it on January the 7th. (laughs) If anybody finds the sitcom club to be a little bit slack and unprofessional, I think it tells you a lot that a production meeting about where the sitcom club is headed in 2014 turned into a viewing of the Duty Free Christmas special. Research. <laughs> it's just like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm watching the Duty Free Christmas special. Oh, I've got that here on. Oh, let's watch it then. <laughs> it's well, a great piece of television, isn't it? There are multiple things to say about this. One 
the unsettling number of times that Keith Bahan looks directly at the lens, for example, doing a Stanley Roper, as it shall now be known. Yeah, it is an oddity. I mean, like we said before, it's all in 16mm, no audience, all shot in location, no real sets as such, it's all in rooms. It's like when, I think, oh, like for example, the Rising Damp film is actually shot in a house which has no character doesn't look remotely like the lovely boarding house set at YTV. So it's sort of lacking something there. You can tell it's a little bit out of sorts. And then the other thing to ponder as well is... I can't, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I am terrible of character names. I can never remember the characters' names, but... I'll just say Keith Barron and Gwen Taylor. Why are they still married? They're always well, there, just there was one bit where other. I sort of said, why are they still together? And he went, yeah, no, I don't mean generally. I mean in this scene. <laughs> why hasn't she walked out? About two lines into it. <laughs> you know what? Let's come back to the Duty Free Christmas special. That'll be a nice one to discuss in the spring. We, I was going to say, we are 11 months too early, or one month too late, depending on your point of view. Hang on, if we talk about it at Christmas, I'm going to watch it again, have we? Can we just write all our notes down about it just now, and then remember them? Let's discuss it in a few weeks. <laughs> so is there dialogue in On the Buses? That indicates Stan's supposed to be in his late 20s because I was reading the TV tropes listing for Dawson casting and they say that Stan is supposed to be in his late 20s. I don't think that there is any specific dialogue. I don't think that Stan actually says, oh, come on, mum, I'm 29 or whatever. But I think that it's implied. Well, first of all, in a couple of ways, it's implied by the clippies that he is following and trying to get dates with and so on. And also the fact that Stan and Jack make reference to Blakey supposedly being much older than them as well. So it's not so much that he just directly comes out with it, but more it's implied in just his general behaviour and so on. And we're also not supposed to find the fact that he's still living with his mum. We're not supposed to find that odd or unusual. I mean, it does come up on occasion when he brings... Pat Ashton back to the house or somebody like that and then she has to discover oh he still lives with his mum and what have you but it's not like Ronnie Corbett and Sorry or anything like that, he's not supposed to be you know this unhappy figure who just will not leave home or anything like that so yeah I can't think of any specific examples as to when he actually says his age but I think it's more about his general behaviour and so on finally before we do get down to the good life let me just say that this is our last sitcom club for a short while. We'll be back probably around about middle of February. All my fault. I'm actually in the process of trying to launch a new blog, which is called Sports Photo One, and I'm going to be focusing on that just for the next few weeks, and so just to get it up and running and what have you. And also, we'll give Ocho a wee break to enjoy the, the lovely Florida sunshine. Florida. Well, whatever. I mean, close enough. I'm in California, but what the hell? It's sunny. That's the main point. And so, yes, we will be coming back around about middle of February, mid to late February, thereabouts. So, anyway, good neighbours. History's produced many great fictional monsters. The callous, young, gangland hoodlum George Hogarth in Big Breadwinner Hog. Darth Vader, master of the dark side. Mr. Ben's no-good brother-in-law, Stan. Jack from On the Buses. I don't think anybody's quite so 
all-pervadingly evil as Tom Good. I don't know why I'm saying that. I don't know. That's the opinion of Richard Bryars. He thought Tom Good was a horrible man. Well, this is true. Now, I don't think we need to go into too much detail about the plot of The Good Life. I think everybody listening knows basically what the the fundamentals of it are. But But there is a lot of setup in that first episode. I thought that was interesting. Well, yeah, this is the thing, because it's nice that you don't just walk into it. It has got a full backstory to it, so it's not just some silly little foible that's established in the first five minutes. They actually think it through. Now, I said to you the other day, starts off with Tom and Jerry in the office. Tom is a draftsman. Jerry started at the company at the same time as Tom, but now he's worked his way up to become management. And the big bad boss figure in this, as he was later on in Terry and June, is played by the wonderful Reginald Marsh. The company makes little plastic toys for dropping into cereal boxes. And Tom is rather frustrated with what he sees as the futility of this. For Jerry, it's simply a means to an end. It's a way to bring in the money, pay the bills, enjoy, as the name suggests, good life. Or what he thinks is. Now, Tom, it's his 40th birthday, isn't it? The first episode. So he's having a wee bit of a midlife crisis and gets talking to Barbara at night. Funny thing is, of course, in this first episode, we never see Margot, do we? We hear Margot, we don't see No, her. that's really interesting. It builds her up. I think Margot's possibly, on paper, supposed to be a bit of a harsher character than she eventually turns out. He sits down, he works it out. Barbara finds him at three o'clock in the morning, still working it out. And this brings me on to the first subject, because it's the one that actually taps into exactly what you were saying there about Richard Briars and how he wasn't completely happy with Tom Good as a character. On the evidence, because we are just talking about Series 1 today, on the evidence of Series 1, Barbara is legitimately behind this idea. She's not just doing it in order to keep Tom happy. And when she's unhappy, like, for example, the episode where they get the range and she's trying to scrub it and what have you, and she's getting really, really scunnered with the whole thing, she'll say so. So this idea that Tom is being ultra-selfish by pursuing this plan, I don't really think that it stands up to certainly viewing the complete first series because more often than not it's actually Barbara that's pushing them on to keep on going with this. And in fact she gets absolutely furious when she finds out, she doesn't know why, but she finds out that Tom has taken on some freelance work from his old boss. I'll come to that later on. But what are your thoughts, Ocho? Because I, I agree that Tom is... He's not hes not Jerry. Put it that way. He's not willing to just go out and work for his paycheck and bring it home in order to maintain a good quality of life for himself and his wife. Tom wants to do his own thing, but I do think that Barbara's right behind him in this. I can kind of see why Briars would come to that conclusion, because I just think... There's just times in this where I keep thinking this is getting a bit dramatic, particularly episode two, when they have that big argument and nobody's entirely in the right. Tom's old boss comes round to dinner at Jerry and Margot's and Tom and Barbara are invited. And it's all this thing of getting him to drop this whole stupid self-sufficiency idea and come back to work. And almost everybody's unreasonable about something at some point. I mean, Tom starts sort of picking at people and, you know, there's quite a few things. Yeah, you nine to fiver, you company men. 
And she goes, you know, you don't have to be like this. The thing is, I think if you played it the way some of it's indicated on paper, I don't think it would have been that popular. I know it had this reputation for just being completely fluffy and middle class and twee, but that's how it survived. But this sometimes feels like it wants to be on on film with no audience. Yes. And I'm not saying this is a fault or a flaw. It's just interesting. But I always say that because, of course, usually if somebody can on the internet can portray something as a flaw, they will portray it as a flaw. As far as I understand, and I could be completely wrong, I can't remember where I heard it, it might have been, I didn't watch Comedy Connections, I should have watched Comedy Connections for this, that the relationship was that Esmond was a bit more acerbic and cynical, and Larby was the fluffy, jolly one, and that it brings a sort of balance to their work. Now, that point wasn't actually directly addressed in Comedy Connections, but I certainly got that impression. Oh, you watched that. What did I watch? What did I watch? As part of my research. <laughs> do, you, do you want to... Life to Beyond the Flaming Box. <laughs> the bizarre demolition of Margot's character. you got all the backstory of Margot. You now know why Margot is the lady she is before you've even seen her or just heard her in episode no, one. It, does, it doesn't hold. After a while, you're just watching it about some completely different character. So we should just explain very briefly that Life Beyond the Box was a two-part, I don't know if it was intended to go on any longer, but there were only two of them. A two-part, and it was like we are often found to be doing engaging in pure whimsy. The one that I did enjoy was Fletcher because that was concentrating largely on what he was supposed to have done after he got outside of prison, whereas in the case of Margot, it was all this backstory as to how she became who she was. But it was was just odd. Back to the good life. So yeah, there's an interesting, weird little tension. Actually, I have my own other theory as to why The Good Life is sometimes seen as a rather empty sack of laughs, which I don't think it is. And it's the same theory. Do you remember Emma Thompson's sketch show? Unfortunately, yes. And how this was seen as the most horrific, god-awful, undergraduate, pleased-with-itself smug mess. Yes, yeah. Now, I think... I think there is something that made that situation much, much worse. The opening titles. Yeah, the Dave Clark Five. Yep, remember that. Yep. <laughs> Dave Brubeck. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Whatever. It's Dave Brubeck. It's on Square Dance. <laughs> so it's her in this like studio dancing to on Square Dance. No, can I just, just to briefly interject there, Ocho. So, so far, ladies and gentlemen, I have described California as Florida. I've described Dave Brubeck as Dave Clark. So keep an eye on all these, and then if you get the whole set, then... Did you see Peter's. on Twitter, Squiddy compared himself to Abel Gaunt? You see that go, I, uh, you, you could have gone, I know who that is. Now... But the thing is, I, I still don't. I just know that it was somebody who was mentioned. It's a French film director. <laughs> okay, and it's a he, is it? Right. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so I think that Thompson's bad reputation was made worse by the self-consciously arty drama school quality of the opening titles. And I think The Good Life theme... A, a hell of a catchy piece of music but I think that's one of the things that maybe sets off in people's minds oh yeah, oh yeah, I know what this is whoops my doorbell because we did watch another bit of Esmond and Larby with Richard Bryars this week yes we did it wasn't I really research was it that. the other one now that theme tune is what is this bouquet of barbed wire 
<laughs> well, of course, it is more unsettling as a, a piece. I mean, it's it's not. And like dark, you said about ever decreasing circles, with that Shostakovich theme tune, it's telling you that something's not quite right here. I'm glad you reminded me, actually, because let me just think now. Yes, I mentioned last week that Ever Decreasing Circles is about to arrive on BBC Four. I now know that it's going to start on Thursday, the 16th of January at 8 o'clock after Top of the Pops. So there you go. I could throw in another idea as to why The Good Life got that reputation, and I suspect that it's to do with its timing, because The Good Life ran from 1975 to 1978, and then the alternative comedy boom began in '79. And so I think possibly the timeline is why it got some of the ire of the new wave of comedians. The most famous pastiche of it is in The Young Ones. Everyone remembers Vivian going off on a rant about The Good Life and then Rick announcing his devotion to Felicity Kendall. But what most people don't remember is that the rest of that episode is then constructed in the style of The Good Life with the incidental music and the fades and so on. It runs all the way right to the end of the story. It's actually quite well done as a pastiche. So Tom, all-round good chap, complete bastard, or perhaps somewhere in between? He's complicated. He's recognised when there's something wrong in his life. I think he has some sort of moral sense. Okay, heading for Suits Corner, but this it's kind of a political work. It's getting in tune with 70s ideas of society. Where are we going? Do we really need consumerism? Yeah, I would agree with that. What is James Burke's connections? Uh, Just just keep on humming to yourself long enough for me to disguise this enemy um, typing. Sorry, I try try not to do too much on the computer because... 1978. Ah, so it's post-good life. But, I mean, that starts with this whole question. Connection starts with this thing of all the power goes out. Would you know how to work a plough? So Tom's very astute for recognising that, but he does get self-righteous sometimes. It is easy to forget, but, of course, these were realistic concerns. 1975, it's only a year and a bit removed from the three-day week and people actually doing their shopping in supermarkets by candlelight. And you could argue that the worst was yet to come with the winter discontent and so on. So, I mean, it's not that far-fetched. Also, that episode with Tony Selby, Tom says to him, you've heard of self-sufficiency, haven't you? And Tony Selby says, yes. So, the only big difference here is the fact that they're doing it in Surbiton. They're not selling up and then going off and buying a farm somewhere. But the idea of self-sufficiency certainly wasn't all that wild and crazy. It's the fact that they're doing it exactly where they previously were doing the 9 to 5. One thing that I do find simultaneously quite charming about Tom, and also I can understand how it could be irritating, is just his general demeanour and the way that he responds. I mean, he usually responds to queries with a joke or a pun or something like that. And Barbara you seems know, to I'm have an immense... with DNA. Fictional DNA. Yeah. We did it in Roy Clark. We look at how you can unpick certain Roy Clark characters and make other famous Roy Clark characters out of them. I think I know where you're going with this, yep. Same thing with Esmond and Larby. In fact, I'm about to probably go crazy here. No, I thought you were going to draw a comparison between the mannerisms and speech patterns of Tom and Mulberry. No. Right, Paul and Martin, in ever-decreasing circles... 
take some qualities from Martin and some qualities from Paul and put them together and you have Tom Good. The inability to take things seriously. To the extent that it's sometimes quite annoying. The pedantry. The self-righteousness. Now, take the qualities you have left over in Martin and Paul that are not in Tom Good, put those together, and you've got Ralph in the other one. <laughs> Ralph yeah. is an annoying yeah. loser who is also incredibly confident and arrogant. Any time in ever-decreasing circles where Martin really thinks he's on top of the situation, like that one which you probably haven't seen yet, so I don't know why I mentioned it, there is one where Martin is completely in control for a bit. And he just gets unbearable. And he turns into Ralph from the other one. So no, there's, there's definitely Paulism in Tom Good. And there's also a bit of Anne Bryce in Barbara. You know what we're talking about? How did the situation in the close get this way? How did the Bryce's marriage get this way? And I think sometimes the good life is an idea of what the early Bryce marriage might have been like when Martin was able to joke a little bit. Actually, another thing, something I've written down here, these are the jokes that people actually make. Quite a lot of the laugh lines in The Good Life are not really sharp one-liners. They are the kind of jokes people make in ordinary life. I think that's another reason it's been successful. Because, again, I'm gonna have to, I, I just feel this terrible need to keep having to justify saying, this isn't a criticism, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> the internet's horrible, isn't it, really? Well, yeah, as far as dialogue is concerned, I think that's a really important aspect. Yes, it is how people speak, and there are a couple of, I don't know if you you can call these tropes, because you're more familiar with that whole business than I, but there are a couple of habits that I notice sitcoms falling into. One is a show, for example, say, Drop the Dead Donkey, as an example. Now, you know, famously, of course, they recorded close to transmission time and they would then get some topical gags inserted into the show. And each time, say, Jeff Rawl would mention, oh, there's a story here about how John Major is going to announce this new policy or something like that. And then somebody will immediately have a, a witty response to it, which is exactly on target, on message to do with the subject matter in hand. And, of course, it's amusing and it gets a laugh, but it's not how real people actually speak. The other element is when you get and this is a I'm sure I've mentioned this before this is a real bugbear of mine when you get sitcoms which are fronted by stand up comedians and you you know it's going to of not going you know out it's coming then. yeah well exactly you know it's coming you know it's coming it's just a matter of time when and say for example somebody says see those traffic lights on main street are out again and the character stops and pauses and goes traffic lights hey you know what's funny about traffic lights and off they go they're into the routine. <laughs> and again, I mean, that even less so. People don't speak like that at all. I think that if you knew somebody who did speak like that, eventually you just want to grab them and shake them and say, look, either go to the open night at the local comedy club and get this shit out of your system, otherwise just fucking stop talking like this. <laughs> or at least maybe that would just be my reaction anyway. Good stuff but, for sitcoms, though. It's Well, it is and it isn't. Or because is... yes. Oh, okay. Well, you don't no, like I, that. I, I, no, I don't, because I know it's going to get laughs, but at the same time, as far as characterization is concerned, everything's just come to a sudden thud, a complete dead end, full stop. You are no longer trying to convey anything about your character 
you're just going for gags, in which case drop all the other actors, drop all the scenery, just get a microphone in your hand and do stand-up, because that's obviously what you want to do. So, yeah, that kind of thing doesn't appeal to me at all. I want to see sitcoms actually be sitcoms and be about situation and characterization and so on. But maybe that's because I'm not a huge stand-up fan. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I would find Tom... I could take Tom in, in small doses, perhaps even small regular doses, but I think that Barbara's got quite a lot of patience to be able to... But she's got a similar sort of sense of humour and she gives as much as she gets in terms of, you know, puns and playing on words and so on. There's something about Felicity Kendall's performance I'm not sure about. Is she on the verge of corpsing at all times? Or is there an actual performance decision? If you look, Barbara is smirking most of the time when she's saying things. I'm trying to work out if Felicity Kendall's just enjoying herself so much. Or if she sort of said, I think Barbara would be the kind of person who'd smirk most of the time. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. Maybe there's a little bit of both in there. Maybe the fact that that's her character allows her to be able to get away with that. Because I understand that in ever-decreasing circles, some of Paul's reactions are not Paul's reactions, they're Peter Egan's reactions. <laughs> They've just been left in. I must admit, I am a big, big fan of just people, actors, ever so slightly slipping out of character when you see it on the face, whatever it may be. There's one, it's not corpsing, there's one episode of Step Twin Son where Harold is delivering his line and there's an almighty noise off screen. Like, some part of the set has collapsed or something like that. It's got nothing to do with the storyline. And after, I mean, Harry H. Corbett continues to deliver his line, but as soon as he's got to the end of it, he sort of looks off to his left as if to say, what the hell was that noise? Hancock's half hour, there's an airfield at the bottom of the garden. Hancock doesn't break the fourth wall with the camera, he breaks it with the studio audience. So a bit where they laugh at a joke, and he goes, do you mind, please? <laughs> it's really odd. <laughs> I want to pick up on something that Birdie said on Twitter. She said, regarding the good life, if it was made today, you know that they would have slept with each other's partners. So what, Barbara pairs off with Margot and Tom pairs off with Jerry? Hey, whatever works best. It was the 70s, man. Oh, well, no, actually, you've got that scene If you in... want to see Barbara and Margot, tune to BBC One. If you want to see Tom with Jerry, please tune to BBC Two. <laughs> you've got that scene in... Episode 2, where Jonathan Lynn, as the window cleaner, misinterprets what Barbara's saying when she says, That was weird. We some sort of arrangement. That no, was but I'm, I'm okay. I'm somebody who I was going to say unashamedly, no, I won't go that far, partly ashamedly, has the complete confessions DVD box set on my shelf. I was thinking, if this was one of those, if it was confessions of the self sufficiency couple in Surbiton, for example, the second that Barbara said to Jonathan Lynn, oh, wonderful, he comes from battle arrangement, no, mis no misunderstanding whatsoever. He would just be, well, hey, and that would be five minutes of your film taken up. No, that seems weird because, come on, Barbara should know how it would be interpreted. Now, if it was Margot, I could understand. But here's another bit where I'm going to probably overanalyze. Sexual openness is part of the goods characters. Not an open marriage, just the, the the way they talk to each other, the way they talk to each other in front of other people. It's not in series one, but it's a bit where Tom just like runs in, and I, I can't remember if it's Margot or Barbara that he grabs. But he just grabs one of them by the leg and goes, mm, nice bit of thigh. <laughs> no, I think that is series one. I remember hearing him say that just yesterday. Yes. I don't want to use the word zeitgeist. Just really on top of the way things were, I'm sure, in the 70s, if I could remember. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, permissive society, general openness, liberal attitudes to sex and gender, and it's the and idea that those have finally behavior. percolated through to Surbiton. And this is probably as far as it's going to percolate through. I mean, remember the conversation between Bob and Terry on the train when Terry's been in the forces for five years and has missed the arrival of a permissive society. Bob has to sort of bring him down to earth and say, look, it wasn't all that much. I know it made for exciting reading in the newspaper for you, but it only went so far. I mean, there's areas of London where it would have been anything goes, but as far as, you know, the towns and counties and suburbs and so on, it didn't pervade all that much. And then at the end of it, by the time all that sort of settles down, you've just got a new overall outlook on things as far as everyone's concerned as far as mass media is concerned and people's general behavior and people are now dressing down and being less formal and so on and so on but it's not as if it was the last days of Sodom and Gomorrah has anybody ever said Sodom and Gomorrah with relation to the good life before or is that a first did Malcolm Muggeridge ever watch the good life <laughs> If you happen to know whether Mark Muggeridge ever saw and commented on an episode of The Good Life, please get in touch with us. <laughs> Let us know. Or any of the shows we've discussed. Yes. Yes, indeed. Particularly not on your Nelly. I'm just going to say that. I would love to think that he just saw even 90 seconds worth. I would love to... Oh, anyway. No, I'll need to check all the back copies of The Observer and The Telegraph and see if he ever wrote anything about that. Anyway. Okay, so I was going to have a little drop of whimsy at this point. Not much, not even wild, but just in relation to that comment from Birdie. If we can extend the sequence of events over different characters, sort of going from Tom to Martin via the other one, so on, then could we say that perhaps after a few years of successful self-sufficiency, perhaps things have got a bit samey, and before you know it, it's the mid-1980s. Here's Felicity Kendall appearing in Carla Lane's The Mistress. <laughs> Could we possibly <laughs> suggest that this is where Barbara's character goes a few years down the line? No. Because <laughs> that, as I understand it, Well, was... all right, if we're just going to start doing this, but let's go back to open all hours. Arkwright dies, he's reincarnated <laughs> as a crab who opens a fast food restaurant under the sea. No, okay, you would not believe how potentially accurate that was, because in the corner of my eye, the darts from Lakeside are on, and in the crowd, there is a table with a couple of two Ronnie's face masks, like lifelike <laughs> ones, and so I sort of look over for just a second, and there's what appears to be Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett sitting watching the darts. So, anything's possible. If you want to pitch it, or I was going to say, if you want to pitch it, there's not a hope in hell of it being commissioned, but if you want to write the fan fiction and put it out on the internet, then knock yourself out. Arkwright as a crab running a restaurant under the sea. Get in there. I'll have 26 episodes, please, says Bill Cotton. Oh, if only Nickelodeon had stopped at 26 episodes. Okay, so you're saying you don't think that that's where Barbara's cancer would have gone? No, I think ever-decreasing circles is where the goods marriage is heading to a certain extent. With the added tension of a husband who's who's also constantly making jokes. I want to put cards on the table now. I like Margot, and I find myself more often than not 
and I will list all her faults and I take all her faults on board but more often than not I think actually I find myself agreeing with her I think that she naturally she comes to Barbara's what she sees as Barbara's defence and quite often she is overstepping the mark because she'll say something on Barbara's behalf and Barbara will get in there and say no no that's not how I think at all but sometimes she's right to do that I mean the episode for example where Tom takes the freelance work Margot knows that Barbara's worried about the finances and she doesn't let up about it and eventually she does get Barbara to admit that she is concerned. She keeps chipping away at Barbara's constant cheeriness and sort of batting away any legitimate queries and sticks with it and eventually gets the answer that she's looking for. And yeah, I I think that... I don't know if I could live with Margot but I understand where she's coming from. Except in her own way, I think that she, that she is quite a good Jerry's neighbor. Desk. And <laughs> I get the feeling that Margot telling Barbara, "Oh, Tom's doing some freelance work. Ah, got some juicy, juicy gossip. I can cause trouble with." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. If I we're going to start cross fertilizing all the various shows we've discussed, here's a theory. Here's a theory. You're going to try and explain to me how you think that Hilda Baker's Nellie Pickers girl fits into? No, I'm saying right. Mar- Margot is from Tilling. Margot grew up in Tilling. That's why she is like she is. You've lost me. Map and Lucia. Oh, okay, right, okay. She'd okay. fit right in with that bunch of no, she would. Yeah, backbiting of course, of snobs. Course. Yes, that's very true. But I think that Margot, deep down, she is a good person. Oh, deep down, very, very deep down. But she does seem to enjoy being offended. There's a few bits where Jerry will say something, and she will put an insane interpretation <laughs> on it. Yes. Yes, well, when, for example... Oh, you he said says, you wanted me to break my neck and die. Exactly, and all he said is, would you turn the light off up the stairs when you're downstairs? <laughs> Jerry, I think, has got as much patience with Margaret as Barbara has with Tom. Okay, here's a thought. We don't want to try and develop this too much, because it is just whimsy, but as far as their personalities are concerned, I could just sort of envisage maybe Jerry with Barbara can't envisage Tom with Margot. Yeah. Can't envisage it. Well, right, Comedy Connections, you've watched it. You you know the information. Now, were there any earlier casting ideas for Margot? Wasn't Peter Bowles in line for Jerry at one point? Yes. The, the only instance that they gave in Comedy Connections as far as a preferred first choice was Peter Bowles for Jerry. And he had a theatre run in the works and he chose that and as he said he was glad that it worked out like that because had he played Jerry then he could never have played opposite Penelope Keith in To the Manor Born because the whole premise there was that these two people have never met before never laid eyes on each other and then things develop over the course of time and he just didn't feel that if he'd been with Penelope Keith for the previous four years in one series he could then do that in another so, Paul Anton, yeah, he was second choice for Jerry, but as far as Penelope Keith was concerned, I don't believe there was any prior choice. They had seen her work in, more often than not, dramatic settings previously, and I think how it all came about was that both Penelope Keith and Felicity Kendall were working in the theatre at the same time, and that's how they both got to know about the good life and discussed the roles between them and so on. It's just because I think Margot is possibly supposed to be older than Penelope Keith. 
I think Margot's possibly supposed to be a little bit harder than Penelope Keith plays her. The way these things happen, you know, once you cast an actor, a character will start to bend a certain way. Yeah, I can envisage that. I think that the only problem you'd have there is that when, for example, in the last episode yeah, in Series yes. 1, she then comes around and says, that look, is... I can see this as a genuine emergency, then that would be too much of a about oh, yeah, face. I, th- that, I think that's definitely written as Margot's redemption. Well, we're not going to do an episode-by-episode breakdown, are we, of this? Well, I've got the episode list in front of me. For what it's worth, and this may be a vast over-analysis... That's our stock in trade. Well, yeah. I do just notice that we've been referring to the show's Good Neighbours, because that's its title in America. I've been watching it on Amazon Prime, where it's listed as Good Neighbours, but those opening titles still say The Good Life, so... I imagine it was probably slightly different on the first broadcast, but I'm guessing they're using the UK Masters now. Well, I was looking at IMDb to check the details of the episode titles for Series 1. Now, I'm looking at the cover for Series 4 of Good Neighbours, the BBC American DVD release, and I just happened to notice that Jerry and Marco are in the foreground, whereas Tom and Barbara are the neighbours, so to speak. At first glance, they actually appear to be secondary characters. Which is uh, is odd, but I think that when the good life is often spoken about, Margot's quite often the first character that people recall. And she's a character who has sort of stolen the show. And out of all the actors in The Good Life, it was then Penelope Keith who had the next successful big sitcom into The Manor Born. It was almost a seamless transition. And her character there is like Margot toned down a few notches so she's still capable of being a little bit grumpy on occasion and she doesn't suffer fools gladly but in a different way if you know what I mean and Paul Eddington yes minister the year after that and of course Richard Briars and Felicity Kendall and all manner of different things but yeah Penelope Keith quite often she's the person that people most associate when they think of the good life straight away the first thing people think of is oh okay self-sufficiency and subtent and then next comes Margot as far as the episodes in Series 1 were concerned, the one that stood out for me, and they're all very, very good. There wasn't a single episode in Series 1 that I thought, oh, that looks like filler or whatever it may be, or it's sort of dragging it out. The episode I most enjoyed, and I suspect this will be the episode which most gets plundered as far as clips are concerned, representative clips, was Episode 5, The Thing in the Cellar. Because that's the episode where, for example, you're seeing Tom's electricity generator in the basement. You've also got Margot talking about the potential for power cuts and so on. There's lots of little bits of interplay between the characters. They've all got scenes between each other and so on. And some classic examples of the being jerks to each other. Unusually, this ends with Jerry having the last laugh. See, if, if Tom had just been a bit nicer about it, yeah, I can see this idea that he is something of a dry rum. Even in Series 1, he is a bit of a dry rum for Martin. Well, one thing that struck me early on was it is a fantastic idea for an ongoing series because there's so much long-term potential. Harvests, turns of seasons, bringing in a different animal to kill. <laughs> that didn't come out right. The pig thing does come and go, but it's like, okay, well, how do you slaughter a pig? The whole thing of getting eggs out of the chickens and killing a chicken. The, yeah, there's definitely a few series in the concept. 
I also quite like the way that it doesn't always have to be cheery. Yeah, the last episode is a bit of a dim view of humanity, isn't it? I mean, it starts out in that, oh, we're all mates down the pub, ha ha. And then it's like, look, look we're going <laughs> to... comes. We are going to starve. Oh, well, hmm, let's talk about it sometime. Bye! Oh. It reminded me a little bit of the first of the two Christmas episodes of Step Twin Son, where Harold is having failed to get his own way as far as going abroad for Christmas. He's now going to have this huge Christmas party. And Albert is the real sceptic, as he usually is, of course. And he's pointing out that, oh, you've got all those Christmas cards there from all the people that you invited to your party. You didn't have very many of them before you invited them. And, of course, as soon as it turns out that they've ended up with a dreaded chicken pox, of course, everybody else just buckers off <laughs> and finds somewhere else to go. And, yeah, it is, again, it's it's rather downbeat, but it's also sort of being realistic. If Yeah, at the time when they're suggesting this idea, why don't you all come along and help us, you sort of think, well, maybe if all of the circumstances were absolutely spot on, say, for example, if the pub had somehow run dry and there wasn't going to be another delivery for a couple of hours and also it was a blazing hot day in the middle of July, then maybe they would just come along and plant a couple of potatoes as a jolly wheeze to pass the afternoon. But actually asking them to do backbreaking work when it's really needed and it's pouring with rain and what have you, then suddenly reality rears its ugly head. Okay, you want a good example of Tom being a jerk? The homemade wine trick he pulls on Margot. Well, yes. Margot comes back contrite and conciliatory and he poisons her. (laughs) Have some of this horrible, strong liquor. (coughs) Have some more because you won't admit to not liking it. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Okay, let's go on to something a bit happier then. Lots of incidental music. Lots of crazy jingling hyper-incidental music. Well, yes, and I always like Ronnie Hazelhurst's work anyway, so I'm always pleased to hear bits and pieces of that. If I can just actually, and I was accusing stand-up comedians of crowbarring and stuff earlier on, if I can just crowbar in a quick reference to Goodnight Sweetheart, I'd like to do a little comparison sometime between the first series of these and then the subsequent series, because my recollection of Goodnight Sweetheart is that there's a ton of incidental music in series one. Some of it is quite jaunty and what have you, and some of it's sort of soft sort of chords and what have you. Not all that dissimilar to what we were listening to the other night in the Juicy Free Christmas special. But it wasn't actually 40s themed at all. And then in series two, all that's lost. And then when he's in the 90s, no incidental music. When he's in the 40s, then you've got occasionally bits and pieces. But still nothing like incidental music for each and every scene change like in Dad's Army for example but yeah there's absolutely tons of it in here and I wonder you were saying earlier I like the, the title little sequence. Archer's bit in episode 5 did you notice that the, the incidental music goes I did not spot that I need to go back and check that okay well here's something I want to bring up to anyone who suggests that Tom is overwhelming Barbara with his enthusiasm for this and then Barbara is sort of going along for the ride, but her heart's not really in it. Her reaction in the pagan ride, when she discovers that he's taken this freelance work on the side, 
I can understand if she was purely annoyed about the fact that he's kept it quiet and hasn't been up front with her and concocted this story about how he's putting up shells for Jerry or whatever it may be. But her reaction seems so strong that that sort of says to me that she's really genuinely committed to all this. And even then, at the end, when they're in the restaurant and she thinks that he's going to pull out a pile of paid bills, she's even furious about that. So, yeah, she's perfectly capable of being headstrong and also she's got this mindset that if the job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. If you're going to do self-sufficiency, then this is what you're going to do and you're going to put your back into it and you're not going to take any shortcuts. We're going to have to come back to this and see how it develops in future episodes and see if anybody contradicts anything said in earlier episodes. If Barbara ever says, you tricked me into this, you horrible man, then we'll know. This is true. And yeah, I know we often say when we've looked at like a particular episode or a particular series, we need to come back to it. And I think that in due course, we will revisit all of the, the shows that we've looked at. Personally, I very much enjoyed The Good Life. To slightly pull back the curtain on our way of working, this isn't really always the fairest way actually to judge a series, but I do tend to have sort of 21st century viewing habits these days, like a lot of people, I tend to watch things in the sort of the box set fashion, just load up the series and let it go, and of course that's not how these shows are meant to be seen at all, they were meant to be spaced out one week at a time, and I don't always think that that is necessarily a good thing, but at no point when I was watching series one of The Good Life, in that box set fashion, and perhaps you were doing the same on Amazon Prime, at no point did I think, oh I need a rest from this, I need to put something else on. I really absorbed me, and each episode came along, and like I say, it really surprised me also, especially as there were seven episodes in that first series as well, so more so than your normal six-parter. No filler. Nothing that I considered filler at all. I mean, usually in a six-part series, you can get away with a couple of strategically positioned duff episodes. Nothing like that. I don't know if you think the same, Ocho, but I didn't spot anything there where I was thinking, yeah, this is sort of padding and we're going to get to a juicier storyline next week. It just held my attention. No, I didn't actually watch it. Just guessed. <laughs> just guessed what it might be like. All of my observations are made up. <laughs> now, here's the thing. We have been discussing recently the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin, or specifically the legacy of Reginald Perrin. And of course we saw John Barron, the only in GCP Christmas special. When we then get onto series two of The Good Life, quite early on, episode two series two is an episode which at first glance I would actually associate more with the kind of storyline that develops in a series which has been going on for long enough that it can start to sort of deviate from its its core being. There's an episode called The Guru of Serpentin, and the basic plot there is a young couple come to the house to learn uh-huh. about Tom's self-sufficiency. One of the students is played by Bruce Bold, who of course was, now I can't remember if he was great or super. He was super. He was super. And who was smashing? That was Jim Bowen, wasn't it? Hey, hey. But, yeah, so everything's connected. But at some point we need to... This is going to take quite a bit of planning. This is not something that we can do off the top of our heads. But at some point we need to do a single podcast, a vast Comedy Connections-style grid of all of these actors and how they're all connected. And 
Yeah. I mean, that podcast might actually go on for about five hours. Part one might. Or is that going a bit left beyond the box? Oh, yeah, we'd go nuts, wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Forget it. So, okay, so Bruce Bold, he started at Sunshine Desserts, where he was quite clingy and a yes man and so on, but otherwise, generally speaking, sort of normal. He's then ended up living in the Grot commune, and this has then sent him to <laughs> Surbiton to try and set up his own, <laughs> his own little universe with Tom as his guru. So really they should have made reference to this when he then arrived back with the legacy of Reginald Perrin and he should have said, oh I met up with this couple in Surbiton and I ended up shacking up with them for the previous 15 years. I was about to say something incredibly dim. I was about to say, I really hope that nobody ever resurrects Life Beyond the Box and does the good life with it. And I just realised that's exactly (laughs) what we've just been talking about. That is what they did. It's only 50% of the entire series. So yeah, lovely series. Thankfully one that does still get a good number of airings, particularly in gold, of course. But even then, still turns up on BBC Two every once in a while. Fingers crossed they might turn up on BBC Two in the afternoons at some point if they're continuing with their retro Afternoons when are you being served and hello, hello, come to an end. Ocho? Yes? Any other business that we need to wrap up on before we temporarily put the shutters... Do the shutters go up or down? Whatever. Before we temporarily close the uh, sitcom club for a few weeks. Not that I can think of. Well, to conclude the show how we used to, because we sort of got out of the habit of this, further reading, or as it is in our case, further viewing. Recently, I think it was... Acorn Media released Series 1 and Series 3, because Series 2 is missing, of Marriage Lines with Richard Briars and Brunel Scales. Nice to see some black and white BBC stuff that's not Doctor Who getting a DVD release. Indeed. And there's quite a few other bits and pieces of Richard Briars' work out there. I think that Network, I think they've released All in Good Faith, which he did at Thames, and we've been discussing the other one, which is Richard Browns and Michael Gambon's two series of that, and they're available. And if you can track them down, one thing which he did which was quite odd, I mean, as far as black comedy was concerned, this was pretty grim, pretty dark, was this four-part drama he made in 1993 called If You See God, Tell Him, which was a satire on the all-pervasive advertising industry. If you can track that down, that's worth we peek. As far as Felicity Kendall was concerned, she had a couple of solo sitcoms in the 80s, one of which was called Solo, and then of course there was The Mistress in the mid-1980s. And then there was Honey for Tea. Oh! oh. Okay, now I've got to say this. If anybody anybody has even just a single episode of Honey for Tea, I've said this before in the podcast, please get in touch with us at the Sitcom Club on Twitter, feedback at sitcomclub.com. I've not even been able to find this on the internet in inverted commas. You know, there are all manner of places you can look to try and find, because sometimes we'll talk about shows that aren't commercially available. Even in those places, I can't find Honey for Tea at all. And this has got to be seen. This is Felicity Kendall with an American accent playing opposite Leslie Phillips in a show from 1994 which absolutely bombed. And we've got to do, we've got to talk about this show, we've got to review this show, but we can't see it. So, anybody's got a hold of a copy of it, please let us know. Something I'd like to see released, maybe by network, 
a show with Paul Eddington and Nanette Newman from the mid-1980s. Thames TV series called Let There Be Love. Just seems to have completely disappeared off the radar. And as far as Penelope Keith, Dame Penelope Keith, as she now is, of course, plenty of her work is available. Executive Stress from the mid-1980s, in which she played opposite Jeffrey Palmer, and then later on opposite Peter Bowles again, following To the Man of Born. In the meantime, as we go on our little mid-season break, anything at all that you'd like us to talk about in a future edition, all your previous requests, by the way, we have them all jotted down. Ocho, could you quickly rattle through the requests that we've already got on the slate for forthcoming episodes from February onwards? Things that have been requested... Uh, Lapsed Cat has requested Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, sitcoms that should have gained an audience, i.e. World of Pub, and Watching. Birdie quite some time ago requested that we look at the oeuvre of Carla Lane, and I I think we should go right back to the beginning and start with her Blessings of This Houses. Mm -hmm. Ian M. Hepburn has requested City Lights. Justin A. has requested Rules of Engagement, but as far as I can tell, he hates it. Well, that may make three of us. Simon Dunn has requested Gurney Slade, and I have that on DVD. And G. Baker requested The Good Life. Ha-ha! That's one we can cross off the list. Indeed, indeed. And G, just to let you know, we will at some point cover Goodnight Sweetheart properly. Although possibly not the mythical Series 7 that we keep on referring to. We might save that for a different podcast. Right, job done. Let's take our winter break. Shall we come back with the Duty Free Christmas special? <laughs> well, no. If we're going to discuss Christmas shows from now, or if we're going to discuss Christmas shows before December, then they have to be right in the middle of summer. Because that's when they used to get repeated back in the day. As far as I can tell from browsing the listings, it seemed to be that the BBC, more often than not, would repeat Christmas shows from the previous Christmas in the summertime, ITV Christmas Before Last. But either way, yeah, at the height of summer, when there's a World Cup game on the other side, then on comes Mark and Wise Christmas Show, whatever it may be. So, of course, later on you do get the phenomenon of Christmas specials which aren't remotely Christmassy, and therefore can be repeated at any old time. So, we will be back sometime in February, probably latter half of February. In the meantime, if you missed any of our previous shows, going all the way back to April the 4th last year, just go to sitcomclub.com. You'll find a link to either subscribe in iTunes or you can put the XML feed into your preferred podcatcher. In there, you will find, for example, Still Game, Up Pompeii, Marion and Jeff, Ocho, you enjoyed that one. Chalk, There's Men Behaving Badly, We Mentioned Not in Your Nelly, Dear John, Mulberry, Man About the House, Whoops Apocalypse with DCT and Squiddy, In Loving Memory, Odd Man Out, Ever Decreasing Circles, Map and Lucia, Come Back Mrs. Noah, hey, our Thanksgiving special, our special on recasting and revivals, Cowboys, Last of Summer Wine, our Christmas special playing the On the Buses board game, Still Open All Hours, and then last week's Drama Club, plus a wee selection of mailbag episodes as well. So they're all in there, 28 previous podcasts, and they're all in there available for you right now. So, until we return, post-Winter Olympics, Ocho, you've been Ocho. Yes. I've been Hey Ho and Co, featuring Mooncat, and we will be with you again soon on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>